Amen. All right, you may be seated. Hey, guys, give the band a hand real quick just for serving us in worship. Uh, well, again, welcome to uh, Mercy Fellowship. I'm, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And a big part of how we do that is is understanding and and internalizing and and owning uh, and embracing the story of God and how it not only impacts our individual stories, but Lord willing, transforms our individual and communal stories. And so today, we're beginning a new sermon series um, that will take us uh, actually past Easter. So, you know, settle in uh, February, March, April. We got you covered on content here at Mercy Fellowship. And so we're starting this new sermon series called The Story of Everything. And so hopefully on your way in, you got one of these discipleship guides. If you haven't, make sure you grab one. We're going to be in week one today in this. But as we begin, today's kind of the, the, the intro. So I'm going to have a, a long intro today. But well, if you want to know where we're going to be in the Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Uh, but what, well before we get there, uh, I want us to, to think about for a moment, I want you to think about for a moment, what's your story? And the reason I ask that is because, right, we get asked that all the time, but story is how we understand the world. Like, like we, we don't just internalize facts uh, or even sometimes ideas. What really captivates us, motivates us, roots our identity, helps us understand our purpose, helps us understand meaning, all comes from narrative. It all comes from story. And so... Who we believe we are in our story will determine how we understand ourselves. It'll also help us understand how we interact with others as we act out our part. And so um, what happens often is that, that we believe... Um, that we need to, to strive in certain ways. So we write a story for our lives, or we believe a story for our lives, and so we pursue education, we pursue success in, in business or athletics or arts uh, in, in some ways. Um, we try to pursue hobbies, form relationships, and we all try to find identity around the story that we believe that we're in. And most of us, when you think about the story of your life, you think about it as the story of your life. Not the story of my life, not the story of their life, because all of us, I believe, start with a default that we are the main character of of the grand story, uh, of the great story. And so when you're the main character, or when I think I'm uh, the main character, well, what that means for the rest of us is that we all find ourselves relegated to supporting roles, right? Oh, that's just a background player. Oh, they're just an extra in, you know, me as center stage. And so what happens when, when we do that is um, we begin to, to uh, have all understanding of events, of what's going on in the world, all through the lenses of how does it impact me, myself, and I, right? And so that can work for a while. And then what happens, though, is like reality starts to smack us across the face, and we start to face great adversity. And when we start to face some sort of adversity in our life or some sort of loss or some sort of challenge to overcome, if we actually overcome it, 
If we actually endure, if we persevere, if we somehow rise above our circumstances, as Hamilton would say, rise above his station in that musical, uh, then, then what happens is now not only are you the main character of the story, you're actually the hero of the story. So what does that make anybody that stands in your way or gets in your way? Well, they're either an annoyance or they're the villain. Now, let's be clear. You've suffered abuse. Something awful's happened to you. You've been wronged. Uh, we're going to get to how we look at the whole world, but we have a rich theology of, of sin and brokenness in the world. So, like, I'm okay with villains in the world, but typically we don't cast ourselves as the villain in our story. We either cast ourselves as the hero in our story or someone else's, or, or um, if we've been wronged, this is super, super popular in our culture, then we cast ourselves as the victim of the story. And we live in a cultural moment in a society where, we, where victimhood is actually a badge of honor and allows you to stand above anyone else because I have been wronged and, and, and we all compete on who's been the most wronged, who's been the most marginalized, who's been the most oppressed. And so, again, hero, victim, well, you're for sure not villain. And so, again, then that role has to be reserved for everybody else. Except, some of us have moments in our lives where we know we've done something that's actually truly shameful. We've harmed another, we've wronged another, we've, we, we've, we've wronged ourselves, we, we, like, like, like your conscience gets seared, perhaps maybe even we'd say the Holy Spirit has given you conviction that, that somehow, shoot, I'm the bad guy here. And so there are moments where we find ourselves as not the hero, not the victim, but actually the villain. And so that, that's really challenging because then we start to ask ourselves, is redemption possible? Is there anything hopeful for me or, or is this just who I am now? And so how we see ourselves in story, like I said, roots us in our identity and meaning and purpose. And so um, what happens is uh, some of you are like, whoa, whoa, that's just like you being the main character sounds super narcissistic. Like, okay, well, also an issue in our society. I think we can all agree, perhaps. And so maybe you're like, no, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm not one of those like, like big out there narcissists. I, I'm one of those narcissists that's like, well, no, no, it's really not about me at all. In fact, actually, I don't matter at all. In fact, in fact, I matter so little. I just hope somebody notices that I don't matter. Right? And again, we start to make it all about ourselves. And so then we, we disengage from the stories of our lives. We disengage um, from, from what's going on. And we just let things happen to us. And rather than being intentional with how we live our lives, rather than being responsive with how we live our lives, we just kind of start to coast and, and get overwhelmed. And we start to believe that we're just kind of a meaningless spectator in what's going on. And so at these times when, when our story begins to, to break down or crumble or we recognize, hold up, I might not be the center of the universe, then, then we start to long for and start to attach ourselves to, to bigger stories. Our individual stories um, is the lens in which we see history, world events, uh, our relationships. And at, at certain points, we're able to shift our gaze just a bit. And, and we start to say, okay, wait, wait. My individual story is too small to explain everything. 
Yeah, I mean, it might explain how I interact here. It might explain some of my circumstances. It might explain why I'm not as successful as I want to be or why my relationships aren't as healthy as I want them to be. But, but dang, it doesn't explain what's going on over there when I see something in the news. It doesn't explain uh, what's going on in my community or in my country. And so we start to grab onto to bigger stories. I want to be part of a bigger story than just me uh, for my identity, meaning, and purpose. And so, you know, sometimes we just simply tie ourselves to the identity of a sports team, right? You're like, okay, I just, I just need to, to root for something. And, and so some of you have gone all in on the Seattle Mariners, and I don't know why. Like, yeah, pitchers and catchers are reporting at some point. Guess what, guys? We're not going to win again. Just not going to happen, okay? Not in the cards. You're like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm a Yankees fan. Okay, but I don't care. Like, I don't even like baseball. That's, that's fine. All right. Ooh, this is probably, okay. <sighs> right, but like, okay, sports isn't your thing. Maybe it's a band, you know, right? Maybe it's movie, a movie genre, some type of art, right? You know, like uh, popular culture. Uh, and so you're like, yeah, that's just kind of helps, helps me understand myself. And, and then maybe like, well, okay, no, I want to go a little bit deeper. So, all right, what do I do? What's my job? That'll give me some identity. Yeah, until you lose it or until the economy changes. Okay, fine, I'm gonna root myself in my family of origin identity. That's gonna be it for me. Until, you know, Thanksgiving dinner rolls around, and you're like, is this the one I wanna be a part of? Right, I, I invited them, okay, next year, uh-uh, just us, right? And, and so, so we realize, oh, those are broken, okay? So maybe instead, maybe I'll just get a little bit bigger, and maybe I'll just kinda of think about my racial identification, or my nation of origin, or, guys, it's 2024, a political party, or political aspirations of someone. I mean, that'll be a grand story. Like, 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 like an, an election will shift everything, uh, or, or you know, somehow um, you know, racial disparities and, and economic disparities, those will all get solved, and at that moment, Shangri-La, it'll be fantastic. Anybody, like, if you've lived, like, I'll be honest, when I was like, uh, I'm trying to think, I was 18, uh, no, I was 20 when I voted my first election. And I was like, this is it. This is going to fix everything. And then, and then four more years later, I was like, no, this is the one that this is going to fix. And, and now, I mean, so I'm 20, uh, and, and I mean, now we're 24 years past that now. And guys, I don't know, something's going to happen. Okay. We've got to have a bigger story than that. We've got to be able to root our identity in something more sure than that. And so maybe you're like, well, no, I, I do want to get spiritual. And so, so you're like, I, I want to get spiritual. And, and so um, you, you say, I want to tie myself to something either eternal or beyond what I can see. And, and, and so you go Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Mormon, Scientologist, pagan, like, like, like whatever it is, uh, and you just try to root yourself uh, in, in whatever that story is of heroes, villains, victims. And, and again, with each one of those in some way, shape, or form, you better perform to clean yourself up as the villain, to dust yourself off as the victim and find somehow that through your spiritual work that you're going to be the hero. And maybe you're like, okay, hold up. No, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm an atheist. Uh, I, I'm not, which is, hey, great. I'm glad you're here. You came into a purple church. 
you know, to learn about Jesus. We believe that there's an omnipotent God that made that happen. If you're an atheist and you shut up here today, hope you enjoyed the muffins, okay? And so you're like, no, no, I don't, I don't, I just want to focus on what I can observe. So you become a naturalistic scientist. You become a rabid environmentalist. You become a secular humanist. And all of these stories explain the world, uh, again, with heroes, villains, victim, some like mode of salvation, some penance to be paid, uh, journeys to pursue, trials to face. And yet, each of these stories is insufficient to fully understand what's happening in the world because they're told from the perspective of too few or they account for too little or, or sometimes like, like they can understand this much of it, but they try to account for all of it. And so their plots sometimes are too thin or, you know, depending on, you know, which, which cult, right? You ever watch a good cult documentary and you're just like, there's some plot holes in their story of the world. How did everybody end up there? Why are they all wearing the same thing? Didn't somebody say, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Like, I don't, right, whatever it is. And so, again, we've got to root ourselves into something bigger, something greater. And so, in our pluralistic world, right, it's really popular to just assert, hey, hey, don't, don't get exclusive here. Don't get, try to, don't try to get, too, stay in your lane. We all got stories, and, and they're all okay, and they're all going to lead to the same place. Well, here's a challenge, though. If all of our stories, whether you've tied yourself to, to some uh, specific worldview, or whether it's just your, I mean, we are very individualistic now as a people. So it's just your, just your timeline, your thread, your story, okay? What happens is because we all start in different points, and we're all going different directions, good luck all getting to the same spot. And more than that, we have this, this illusion that being pluralistic as a society actually leads to less conflict. Here's the problem with that. When my story says you're the villain of my story and your story says you're the hero and our stories start to hit one another, we start to hit one another. Conflict ensues. Not greater harmony, greater division. And so... We have got to root ourselves in a better and greater story because we find ourselves as a people, individually and collectively, more divided as you have your truth, truth, and I have mine. Well, at a certain point, the truth needs to win. And so... I just want you to know as you come in today and, and as we kind of set the stage for the next several weeks walking through this, I want you to know this. The deepest conviction and assertion of what the Christians call the gospel, what we as Christians call gospel, good news, is not that there are many stories, but that there is one story for everything. And it is a story that is, that is sufficient enough and big enough to, to answer our questions, to, to hold and sustain our doubts, to, to root our identity, to explain suffering, to cultivate flourishing, to provide real and present lasting hope now and for eternity. And so when we get caught up in all these other stories, 
and forget the story, we will find ourselves unrooted and ungrounded, and we will start just flowing down whatever river the world is going. And so this big story, this Christian worldview, is, is, a, is a word um, that, that I'm going to use that we'll try to hold on to a little bit in this series, and, it's, and the word is meta-narrative. You're like, everybody just went cloudy for a second. Okay. Meta narrative means big overarching story that covers everything. That's what we believe about the Christian worldview. That is what we believe about the big story. The, 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 the story at times can see, uh, seem a bit complicated, other times incredibly simple. But it is a plot enough, it is big enough to make sense of everything that's ever happened in history. It's big enough to help us understand our cultural moment now, to understand what you and I are going on through individually, to understand how we form as a people collectively. And it, it's sufficient enough that no matter what happens in the short-term, current events, near future, or distant future, this story is still big enough to help us understand it. That nothing's going to happen that's going to unsettle our understanding of the story that as Christians we find and see rooted in, explained in, unpacked in, in the Bible. As Christians, we're Bible people. And so... Um, we believe that this, this meta-narrative is found here in the Bible. And maybe you're like, yeah, I came to church. I expected Bible. Like, that's, that's just what they do. That's what they talk about. Well, I'll just tell you, like, uh, for me, even growing up in the church, you know, hearing uh, Bible teaching and preaching for years and years, it wasn't until my, my mid to late 20s that, well, certainly that I ever heard the word meta-narrative, but certainly had some understanding that, that this wasn't just, like, like, good moral examples or good rules for life. Or, or a love letter from God. Dearest you, here you go. Try reading an imprecatory psalm and try to say, oh yeah, it's God's love letter to me. Or maybe, you, maybe if you grew up in church, you heard this one. Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. It spells out Bible in case you're wondering the, like, how that all worked out. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that, that's a story. That's a worldview. They're like, okay, here's just some stuff I'm going to do, but eventually I'm going to check out. no. We believe that the Bible isn't just an instruction manual for life or, or just about God's plan for your life, um, but, but it, is, um, it, it is having a high view of what this book is. We believe it's the word of God in a way that is transformational and helps us understand what's going on today, even though it was, uh, it's ancient and active and Holy Spirit inspired. It's written from 40 human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit across three continents over 1,500 years. You're like, that's a pretty big story if it took 1,500 years to write. If it took 40 different authors in multiple languages across multiple continents. And so we believe that the, the 66 books of the Bible, like, like they serve as links in a chain that form one big chain of one big story that can be understood in, in, in four simple words. Four words. You want to know what the Bible's about? I got four words for you. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Maybe you're like, okay, some of those sound a little churchy so I can make it even easier for you. Good, bad, new. 
perfect. That's the big plot of the Bible. The Bible begins with creation. There's a God who's made everything. Everything that we see, everything that is unseen is all from the creator. He made it all good. He made it for his glory. He made it for our joy. He made humanity in his image, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. So we can get things like human rights. We can get things like, like understanding the value of humanity. He made us relational so we know when we're lonely, we're not with other people, we feel a disconnection. He made us for a purpose. He said male and female, so we can get gender uh, and sexuality and identity from that for a purpose to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. Okay, now we've got a multi-generational story and path and plan for our lives. He said, hey, go into the world and subdue it. So now we are cultivating the world, turning wilderness into cities, into places of peace, flourishing, prosperity, and today, if you're like, I'm going to go into the city, no one thinks of those things. And that's because of the fall. That's because at a certain point, humanity said, no, no, I've got a better story, God. I don't want you as the author. I want to be the author of my own story. So we rejected the author. We've begun writing our own stories, but untethering them from the creator, from the author of life, from our purpose. And then that's where we get all those fragmented stories. Sin enters the world. And, and regardless of your worldview, you've got some idea of sin. Even if you're like, no, no, all I care about is the climate. Well, your sin is all the trucks out there, right? With gasoline. The electric ones are cool, I think. I don't know. Maybe I'll get one one day. Who's to say? We all have our version of sin. Something that is wrong, or in this case, separates us from God, separates us from one another, separates us from our sense of self, that leads, the Bible says, to spiritual, relational, and ultimately physical death. The fall in the story explains for us all of human suffering. Explains for us disease, division, it explains for us at certain points, like it says all of creation is infected by it. So, hey, why does that earthquake happen? Like, you know, is it because we did this? Or, no, this, the world's broken. That it's just not right. And God's not okay with that. And generations go by and God makes a promise that redemption will come. That one will come who will redeem his people. That, that the good God promises to send a redeemer to his people. And that person, that son of God, that man who is God is Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man. Um, he reconciles us, brings us back together in relationship with God He lives a perfect sinless life for us. He dies a death we deserve. We believe as Christians he died as our substitute for our sin, that your sin and my sin and our sin is worthy of death, and Jesus took it for us so that we don't have a debt anymore. We also believe that Jesus resurrected, providing hope for life now, life for eternity, that God is the one who's over death. Uh, and so Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes. He builds his church, and, and God's kingdom expands in the world, in and through his church. And that helps us understand why a story that played itself out in Israel a couple thousand years ago during the Roman Empire is one that still impacts and affects our world today, all the way here in Snohomish County a couple thousand years later. 
Because that kingdom kept expanding across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, across language lines, across continents. So the bunch of folks over here in western Washington a couple thousand years later are saying, that's my story. That's what I'm a part of. The kingdom keeps expanding. Churches keep getting planted. People keep getting baptized. People keep pledging their allegiance to God as their redeemer and king. And then we believe that Jesus will return. That Jesus' first arrival that we talk about in Christmas is in humility, right? Comes as a little baby, right? Comes into a poor and marginalized area. But the Bible says, and our big story says, no, but he returns like, like, like roaring like a lion, coming in like dressed in white on a white horse, that victory happens with a breath. There's no more sin, suffering, or tears, and, and everything is made perfect. And so when you're like, well, where are we? What's, like, like, I mean, I kind of like the idea of that happening. New heavens, new earth, God and his people all together. And so as we try to just understand who are we in 2024? What's going on in your life and my life and our life? Like, well, then that helps us to root that we are between redemption being made new and restoration, all things being perfect. Conflict over. And so what I just did there in five, six, eight minutes gave us a broad view of the Bible is really, um, I want you to think about it this way. Um, uh, several years ago, my wife and I got to go for our 10th wedding anniversary to the island of Kauai. Okay, it's where like all the movies you like got filmed, like Jurassic Park and Tropic Thunder, uh, all those great uh, classics, um, right? Uh, we're all filmed on Kauai, and, and we're flying over at 30,000 feet. And from, from, from the top of the airplane, I looked down, and I could see it's an island. I could see it's green. I could see there's water around it. That's what we just did in creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Good bad, new, perfect. That's the 30,000 foot view of the Bible. What we're going to do over the next 12 weeks is, is not what we do often, which is, I mean, we get into one book of the Bible. That, that's like going on a hike in one part of the island or going to a beach in another part of the island. When we're, when we're walking through different books of the Bible, we're, our feet are on the ground, we're in and on the island, and all we can see is what's right around us. And, and yeah, we, we know that this is part of a bigger story, but we, we know that this is where we're at in the island. What my wife and I got to do after a couple days there in Kauai, because our, our first day was one of those hikes on the Kalalau Trail um, on the Nepali coast. It was gorgeous. We had no idea until we finished that it was the fourth most dangerous hike in the world. And I'm glad we didn't know until we finished because there's no way she would have gone on it with me if she knew that beforehand. Like we got off the trail. Like, oh, you see that trail? Yeah, guess what? Sometimes there's a crazy person that shoves people off the cliffs and we're like, oh, glad we didn't see him. Bad story, okay? So right, when we're walking through books of the Bible, that's going on the hike or a day in the beach. But what we did after a couple days was because we did the timeshare thing and wasted a bunch of time, but they, they gave us a voucher. So, ha, we didn't buy a timeshare. We won. Uh, okay, we got the voucher. Uh, we got to go fly on a helicopter. And on that helicopter ride, they gave us a tour of the island. Not feet on the ground, not 30,000 feet. Uh, and that tour, man, they didn't hit everything, but they kind of hit the big parts of the island that kind of helped us understand how the island works together better. That's what you and I and we are going to be doing over the next several weeks as we walk through this series called The Story. 
And so we hope that as we do this, that, that, that one, we understand as we're discipling people, like hope, helping people, you know, uh, learn and, and live and love like, like Jesus, um, that, that we, just, we just believe that we don't live in a culture that's very biblically literate. So we need to understand that helicopter level of the story better. That we want to be gospel-centered, understanding that, yeah, there's, there's, there's ways we're supposed to live that this book tells us about, that there's, that there's um, stories and, 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 and things that we can learn from, but, but really we want to be rooted in the truth of the gospel, that how each chapter of this can give us confidence on, on, on not us being the hero, but, but Jesus being the hero of our stories. And so that leads us, that's the, the long, long intro, guys. That leads us to where we're going to be today. A few verses that we'll walk through. Luke chapter 24. I think I've broken up here. Yeah, I've broken up here into three sections, starting in verses 13. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 21. It says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and, and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers and, and delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and, uh, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Okay, we went a little farther there. So in our telling of the story, how we're going to understand this kind of helicopter view of the Bible is, is maybe, maybe you kind of figured out. We didn't, we didn't start in the beginning, right? This, this kind of in the middle, middle end is, man, I, I love a movie or a series that opens up and it's a little chaotic and you don't know what's going on and you got something like, like whoa, what, what, how do we get here? What's going on? And it just drops you cold open into the middle of the story and you're a little disoriented and you're trying to figure things out and then after that kind of, kind of big incident, after, after that, that, that big idea at the beginning of the story, then it flashes back and you go on a journey building towards that event, that as you get closer and closer to it, you're like, you're like oh, I, I, whoa, hold up. I see this thread here. Oh, oh, that now makes sense here as it connects. And, and it all starts to culminate back at that, uh, that event, that, that climax of the story. And then, and then, whoa, oh, now we are building from that, and now it's continuing. 
And so what we do is, is we're finding ourselves right now at this spot in the middle. Are these, these two travelers, they're walking on a lonely road. They're going towards this small village. Clearly something has happened in this, this regional capital city of Jerusalem uh, a couple of days earlier. There was conflict. There was a crucifixion. All of that's kind of in the, the near past. It's been a couple of days. And we see these two guys, they knew the guy who was executed. They knew the guy who was murdered on the cross. In fact, he wasn't just a guy to them. He, they, they followed this guy as their leader. Like they, they, they listened to this guy as a teacher. They believed he was a prophet who would draw them closer to God. And, and, and so they're disoriented. And they're trying to make sense of what did we just see? What did just happen? Like, that guy was a prophet. Man, that guy was preaching. Man, sometimes when we go to his services, man, the food... Oh my gosh, the fish and the bread, phenomenal. Like, like he did some, man, some, we saw some wild stuff happen. That was, like, like, we, like our nation, Israel, we've been beat down for hundreds of years. This was going to be the guy. This was going to be the guy to turn our country around. This was going to be the guy to, to help restore us to our rightful place in the world. And then, he was killed by the religious authorities. Oh man, he claimed to be God. And so they're walking in this, they're joined by this, for them, unrecognized traveler. And there's this phrase here um, uh, uh, in this text that I want you to hold on to in verse 15. Jesus himself drew near. That in their disorientation, in their brokenness, in their hopelessness, and they're trying to sort things out, that's when Jesus shows up. When your story is disoriented, discouraged, like, like desolate, I don't know what's going on. I don't know, that is a perfect time for Jesus to show up, to walk with you, to listen to you, and we'll see ultimately provide clarity around the story. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't really know why this is. I mean, there's, you know, different ways you could maybe think about this. You know, sometimes like um, when I was a, a kid uh, growing up in elementary school, right, it's like first grade, you know, you got your teacher at school and then it's out on the weekend and you're at Dairy Queen and, 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 and in walks Mrs. McGaffey and it takes you a minute. You're like, is that Mrs. McGaffey? I don't, you're like, I thought she lives at the school. What is she doing out here? Right? And, and, and you're like, you know, it, you know, something, it takes you a while to recognize, well, okay, these guys walked with him for a while, so it probably wasn't that. Maybe because Jesus was in a resurrected body, they, they, he just looked maybe different, I, I don't know. But, but I want you to think about this possibility, and I'm stepping away from the book for a second, this possibility, that maybe they're so disoriented, the trauma was so deep, the pain of what was going on was so strong. The hopelessness was so thick that as they're walking, it says they're sad, their heads are down. And they just, we talked about this in the book of Ruth, they just can't see anything else but their pain. And there's Jesus. And he's walking with them. How easy is it for us to lose sight of Jesus' presence in our life when things get difficult? When he might actually be right there. He actually might be trying to tell us something. He might be trying to talk to us. He might be trying to walk with us. And so Jesus, man, Jesus is great. Jesus is a good counselor, mighty counselor, some might say. Um, and, and it says uh, that, um, that he starts to draw him out. He goes, okay, well, hey, guys, why are you so down? What's, what's going on? And, and man, these guys, they start to get a little heated. Like, hold up. You don't know what just happened? You don't know about this crucifixion 
They have, like, like, it's the only thing on anyone's feed, right? You scroll, all it is, crucifixion, crucifixion, crucifixion. There's nothing but crucifixion. The conflict that happened in Jerusalem. And they start to break it out to them. And they, and they, they start to tell the story. And, and they tell the story about as well as any journalist does. They get some of it right, a whole bunch wrong, okay? They start to tell the story. And, and as they tell the story, they, they tell the main character, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so he's a poor man from a poor place. They say, well, he, he's a, a prophet, someone who listens to God and tells people what he says. He was a, a good teacher. Um, he was significant. He's a good preacher. Uh, the crowds liked him until they didn't. He did some great things. He did some, some mighty works, they said, so some healings, some, some miracles. That's pretty interesting. Uh, and so, like, the reality is they actually believe some really good things about Jesus. And maybe you really believe some good things about Jesus, but I want you to know, you can believe some good things about Jesus and still not have a great story. Because if Jesus is just a man, if Jesus is just a teacher, if Jesus is even just a prophet, I mean, hey, like, there are, like, I mean, there are a lot of people who are okay with Jesus being okay, or even Jesus being good. Gandhi? Gandhi's like, yeah, I like Jesus. He's a great teacher. Those who practice Islam, they believe in Jesus as a prophet. Not the Son of God. You have LDS folks, um, a Latter-day Saints, Mormons, come to your door in the white shirts, on the bikes and all that stuff, right? Like, they'll tell you all about a Jesus, but it's not this Jesus. It's not the Son of the God, it is, and God the Son. It is a Son of a God. One of many. So again, you can believe some really good things about Jesus and still have a sad story. And so as they tell the story, they talk a bit about the villain. Hey, the chief priests, the religious leaders, like the people who are supposed to tell us the story of everything, the people who are supposed to help us root our identity and understand spirituality and understand God. Like, like they were the ones who taught us the Bible all the time. Uh, like, like they offered him up to our corrupt government. Man, the local government, corrupt. The national government, corrupt. Like, like, like we ain't getting justice from those guys. And so, so they offer him up and they say, oh, oh, his problem was he didn't align with, with their story. Because in their story, they were still a bit of the hero. They were the ones that get to decide if you get mercy or grace, if your sin was forgiven. And so... To them, this is a really sad story because the, the Roman government executed him by crucifixion. It's tragic because they had hope that Jesus would lead this little nation of Israel back to national, global prominence. And so their hope is dead because their Jesus is dead. That's a bad story. That's a really sad story. In fact, they're even a little disoriented because they, they did believe that Jesus was a prophet. And, you know, if you're going to listen to Jesus as a good teacher, you better listen to all that he said then. If, and if you believe he's a prophet, you better believe he had a connection with God. And so what he was saying was true and divine. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, that, that he called it as a prophet, hey, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. Right? Dude's calling his shots. And so these guys are saying, hey, by the way, he died, he's crucified, and here we are on day three. No Jesus. 
He said he was going to rise. We don't see it. Doesn't feel like it. And so, what do they do next? Where do they go for hope? Here we start to see that hope is possible. Verse 22 through 27. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb, this is where Jesus was buried, early in the morning, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And now he said to them, I love Jesus, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so Cleopas, right, he continues to tell this sad story about how disoriented they are. They're like, yeah, yeah, we haven't seen him. He's probably not alive, but some of the women, which in that culture was like not a reliable source. Sorry, guys. Thankfully, Christianity has permeated most of the world, so women are seen as much better than they were before Christianity. So if you think Christianity is anti-woman, you should read the Bible. It, God made women. He's, he's for them, and, and men too. Both. Okay. Just feel like it has to be said sometimes, particularly in our current culture. But he says, in our sadness and hopelessness, we're now hearing rumors of this resurrection. They're like, somebody emptied the tomb. The women said they saw an angel said Jesus was alive. Some of the guys, including Peter, who we all know, if you know your Bible at all, Peter's a little rash at points. And so, like, yeah, Peter says it was empty. They checked it out, no body, but without seeing Jesus dead or alive, it just kind of, it just seems too good to believe. It seems too good to be true. It seems like, like, I don't know that I want to have hope because I saw the crucifixion and now we just have an empty tomb. So they're confused. And can you just, like, you know, they're almost like, if we could just see him, we'd believe. If we could just talk to him. All the while, right, they've been walking on this road to Emmaus. You can just kind of see Jesus. I wonder, I, I do wonder, you know, wonder, maybe Jesus had a bit of a smirk in his face. Like, hmm, interesting story. I'm about to drop a bomb on these guys. He says, hey, hold up. Your story's good, but it's not great. Yes, Jesus is a teacher. Yes, Jesus is a prophet. Yes, he did mighty works. He's a good preacher, all those different things. But he said, did you not know that the Christ had to suffer and die and was going to be resurrected? Well, all of a sudden now, Jesus isn't just a good teacher or a good guy or a prophet. No, that word Christ means Savior King of God's people. The promised one who would bring freedom forgiveness, resurrection, life, redemption. He's like, no, your guy wasn't just a teacher. Your guy was, is the Christ. You got to understand who the main character in the story is. Jesus is bigger than you think. He's more than you think, more than you can wrap your head around. And, and I think it's amazing that the he doesn't just say, hey, guys, it's me. I'm right here. I'm the good prophet. I called it. No, he just points them back to the identity of who Jesus is, the Savior King of God's people. And then 
he kind of almost gently rebukes them. He says, you've misunderstood the point of the Bible. The story of everything is a story that's all about Jesus. And when he says the prophets and Moses and all that stuff, that it was shorthand for talking about what we know about as the entire Old Testament. And as they're walking to Emmaus, Jesus starts at the beginning of the Bible and just walks his way through and shows them how all of the Old Testament anticipates the arrival of the Messiah into human history to do what only he can do, and that is redeem his people. And so, Jesus is more than you think he is. He says, this, this scripture is not about, like the nation of Israel's in there, individuals are in there, families are in there, prophets are in there, kings are in there, all in the Old Testament. And sometimes we pick up this book and, and we think it's about us. And I want you to know that this story, the story of everything, it may not be primarily about you, but it is absolutely for you. It is for us. It is for me. It is for you. And so he unpacks all of it that this, you guys got the story wrong. It wasn't about a nation returning through ascension. It was about Jesus, the Savior King of God's people and his resurrection. He said that is what the story is about. And for these guys, it's kind of like that, that moment in the movie, The Sixth Sense. If you're like, hold, hold up, don't spoil it for me. I think it's like 20 years old, guys. You've had your time. So the end is Sixth Sense, right? Little Haley Joe Osmond looks at um, Bruce Willis. And he, what does he say? I see dead people. And that's when we realize Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. All the other people have been dead the whole time. It's kind of a creeper, right? Uh, and, 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 but, but all of a sudden, like that first time you watched The Sixth Sense uh, and, and you knew that, that what, what happened at the end, you want to watch the movie again because you want to see, well, how, where were all the Easter eggs and the clues and everything that led up to that? That's what Jesus was doing with them in this teaching. He's like, let me just tell you, you got the story a bit wrong. You got some of it right, you got it but you got something wrong. Let me tell you all of it now. And it's that sixth sense moment for them. The story is all about Jesus. And so all the pieces come together. All the, the senselessness of his crucifixion now has a purpose because it wasn't just Jesus as a martyr. It's Jesus as Messiah. It's Jesus dying for your sin, dying for my sin so that we could have a restored relationship with God. And before you're like, hold up, maybe they're just talking to some rando and he tried to rewrite the story of the Bible. No, Jesus himself actually said in his teaching before he died, uh, 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 went to the cross, John chapter five, verse 39 and 40 says this. You search the scriptures, he's talking to the religious people, because you think that in them you're gonna have eternal life. It is that they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is saying all of the Bible is about him and about how you and I and we can be in restored relationship with God through faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Savior, King of God's people. 
And so honestly, like you can be religious and read the Bible. You can be a critic of Christianity and a you know, high scholarly academic and try to attack the Bible. And you can find verses that if you just throw a verse at somebody sounds kind of weird or maybe kind of mean or whatever else, but, but you're missing the plot. You're never going to understand the Bible if you don't know that it's all a story about Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to start doing stuff like just kind of useless allegories where, well, there's just some stories there that just, if they ring true to you, great. But they're not the truth. No, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or maybe you're like, no, no, I think I can read the Bible and just do the things. Well, keep reading. Every time God's people were given the law or given instructions, it wasn't like the matrix where it just gets downloaded and everybody's like, okay, I can do it now. I know Kung Fu. It's like, no. Like, like it just, it doesn't take long before sin again keeps creeping in. And so it can't just be a moral book for us. Be a good person, earn your own salvation. No, it needs to be about the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So that leads us to our last verses as we close. It says this, verse 28 through 35. So they drew near to the village where they were going. And he, meaning Jesus, acted if he was going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's towards the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them by the breaking of the bread. See, I, I just believe that the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and minds and lives when God's word is preached, taught, proclaimed, read, studied, meditated on, understanding that Jesus is the hero of the story. And, and these guys, like they said, can you just stay with us? Like, like this Bible, this is the best Bible study I've ever been to. You're blowing our minds right now, walking through the Old Testament, talking about how it's all about Jesus. We are so encouraged with God's plan of redemption. We're so certain and sure that our Savior is going to live and reign. And they're like, come hang out. And so Jesus stays with them. Like, good Bible teaching is intoxicating. And so he hangs out with them, and they begin to break bread. And a significant shift happens. And I don't know if it's because um, it reminded them of when the loaves and fishes, when he fed 5,000, or if they had been around uh, maybe that last supper. But when bread was broken, I think they thought about the broken body, his blood shed. They thought about that last supper. And here it is, a foreshadowing of what Christians do and have been called to do when we gather for a couple thousand years. And that means that when we gather together as God's people, that we break bread remembering Jesus' body broken for us. And we take the cup remembering Jesus' blood shed for us. 
That's what we do at communion. And it was at that moment that their eyes were opened. Jesus kind of vanishes for a second. And these guys were like, hold up. Wait, I, I can't wait till tomorrow on this one. I can't just like post it out in the stories and hope to see people later. Like they had just gone seven miles and that night in the dark, they run back to Jerusalem. And what do they do? They find a gathering of God's people. They find one of the first gatherings of the church. The 11 disciples and others gathered together. And what were people gathered together doing? They were remembering Jesus Christ crucified and celebrating his resurrection. That the cross is where our sin is dealt with, and the resurrection gives us hope for life now and forever. And God's people have been doing that for a couple thousand years. Every week, retelling the story in some way, shape, or form about Christ our King, the Savior King of God's people. And that's what we're doing. And so, maybe today for you, it's time to actually respond to that story. Maybe today's the day that you need to actually repent, meaning turn away from your small story, from your individual story or your, your story where, where you're the hero or you're the victim. Or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's time for you to trade in the fact that you've been the villain of your story and be redeemed and to pledge your allegiance to the Savior King of God's people who rules over the story of everything. And when your hope and faith is in Jesus, you have forgiveness of your sins, redemption of your souls, and the promise of communion with God now and forever when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.